Well, stand with me as we rise to read this morning's sermon text. You turn your Bibles. I do hope you have one to Acts chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles. It should be in front of you. You'll find this morning's text on page 914. What we have before us today in our ongoing series through this wonderful book of Acts is just the first seven verses of chapter 6. So let me read that brief text for us and then pray for God's blessing on our study and we'll begin together. So listen now as God speaks to you through his word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they had said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do rejoice this day that you are our God and we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture and ask that even in this study of your wonderful word this morning that you would gather us like sheep into your fold, that you would feed us, that you would nourish us, that you would correct us and equip us that we might glorify you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the more surprising things that I've ever read in my study of 19th century American church history came from the pen of a pastor in Virginia. His name was J.L. Reynolds. In 1949, he was the pastor of Second Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, a very large church, and he wrote a book that year to address what he called the all-absorbing topic in the Christian world. And students, if you know your American history well enough, you, you might think that the all-absorbing topic was something political, cultural, even societal. As I was thinking about what he said in that book this week, I thought to myself, what would we say, what might you say is the all-absorbing topic in the Christian world today, in our context, in the year of our Lord, 2022? Well, in 1849, he began this book saying, church polity is the absorbing topic of the Christian world, end quote. And children, you might think, what exactly is church polity? And students, you might think, why would it absorb anybody, church polity? Well, church polity is just structure. It's how something is governed. It's how the church is run. And it's quite important, actually, in any church's life. Uh, we come to a text today that is no doubt the, the earliest description about early church polity, what the structure of the early church was like. And I want to show you from this passage, the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6, why church structure is so important. 
This is a famous passage some of you might know for a variety of different reasons. I've listened to no small number of sermons on this passage in all my life. I've heard things from this text, sermons on how you grow unity in the church, how to deal with division in the church, why you need to appoint qualified men in the church, what even are the qualifications for deacons in the church, what's the bare essential emphasis of a true gospel ministry, you know, these kind of things. And there's even something of a cottage age industry discussion debate on whether or not this passage gives us the first institution of a diaconate. And... Those things don't really need to occupy our attention, I think, this morning, even though we'll mention, I suppose, many of them along the way, because the essential point that you want to see from this passage is healthy church structure aids the gospel's advance. That's what I want you to see along the way today in three particular parts. Healthy church structure, church polity, it aids the gospel's advance, and we're going to notice that in three parts and simple words to delineate our drive through this text today are problems, priorities, and power. So first of all, you want to see that healthy church structure addresses common problems. Look at the beginning of verse 1 once again. We're told now, in these days. Now, students, what are these days according to the book of Acts Well, if you remember just recent weeks, you only have to think about actually chapter 5 in the book of Acts. These days were days of difficulty. They were days of trial. They were days of satanic opposition against the church. You could even take in miniature Acts chapter 5 and 6, and what you get in these short chapters is the ordinary tactics, strategies, schemes that Satan will throw against a local church trying to tear it down, trying to stop the advance of the gospel. So what was happening in these days? Well, if you remember two weeks ago, as we looked at the beginning part of Acts chapter 5, we saw Satan try to destroy the church from internal corruption. Students, you remember there was this man and woman, this husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. They had sold a piece of property, and they made it seem as though they gave all of the profit from that property to the church, but In actuality, they held some of it back, and they thus lied to the Holy Spirit. And we saw in the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5 that God judged them. He killed them. Ananias first, and Sapphira second. And in the span of about three hours, God was protecting the gospel's advance, Satan trying to destroy it through internal corruption. And then like we had already seen by that point in the book of Acts, what we noticed last week was Satan also throws external persecution against the church. Because what ramped up last week is the apostles were not just imprisoned for the preaching of the gospel, but for the very first time, there were hands placed upon them by way of beatings and torture and physical oppression, told they must not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ anymore. And if you glance back to where we left off last week, verse 41 of chapter 5, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor For the name and kids, did they stop preaching and teaching? Well, of course not. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So Satan's trying through internal corruption, external persecution to stop the advance of the gospel. What we're going to find out in our text is in these days, he has another strategy he throws against the church. Notice as verse 1 continues, Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose 
against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what you have here is a sense, don't you, of the size of the early church. If you include women and children along with the men that have been mentioned to this point in the book, it could easily be something like 20,000 people meeting in various house churches, speaking different languages. Here you have Hellenists who are Greek-speaking Jews, their widows not receiving the daily distribution of food that the Aramaic-speaking Jews, the Hebrews, are, and a complaint arises from one to the other. And Luke doesn't tell us, as he could, exactly what is the nature of the complaint. You know, was this some sort of ethnic intimidation, even discrimination against the Hellenists? He just simply tells us, actually, the problem is a complaint rose from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. He wants to fix our attention, I think, on that word complaint. It's a word that has a a rich meaning, actually, in the Old Testament. It's Greek translation. You could also translate it as murmuring. Grumbling. And kids, can you think of something that often happened in the Old Testament when God's people were found murmuring and grumbling? Nothing good ever came from it when a complaint rose from God's people. Just yesterday in the morning in in our backyard, we had this uh, pile of stuff I needed to burn, trims and Um, trees and limbs that I had cut down in recent weeks, and it should have been dry enough, but you know, from the weather that we had, perhaps on Thursday and Friday, it was was wet enough that I wondered if it actually would, you know, light. And so we took a few boxes just to kind of start the fire, and I lit it with the kids, and, and sure enough, the actual pile didn't itself light up. But then if you were outside and you had come into our house in the ensuing hours, you would smell smoke, because there was this one old dry log that just sat smoldering for hours and hours and hours. Emily comes home from the hospital late at night when it's nearly dark. She smells smoke. What's going on in this house? Well, something's smoldering in the backyard. Here's a complaint smoldering in the life of the church. What's the common problem? Division and dissension. How often it is true that what tends to destroy a local church is just a complaint from one against another, smoldering, rising, festering. I wonder if you're a kind of person that is prone to divide and sow dissension through simmering, smoldering, complaints and grievances from one towards another. But it's not just a satanic attempt to divide the church and bring dissension into the church. Notice there's also another common problem that they have to deal with, according to verse 2. The 12 apostles, they summoned the full number of the disciples together and said, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. You could also thus add to the threat facing the church here is not just dissension and division, but it's also distraction. Because how is the gospel advancing? How are souls being brought into the kingdom? Day by day, night by night, the apostles are not ceasing to preach and teach the gospel. But now, through a genuine need that's come into the life of this gathering, this assembly, Satan is trying to what? Stop preaching and teaching. Let the apostles deal with the food. But they say it's not right. 
We're going to see soon enough, aren't we, that serving tables is a noble, it's a dignified duty even in the church, but it's not right for the men that Christ has commissioned to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth to be so distracted with serving food that they no longer serve the word to the nations. So healthy church structure addresses common problems, and we're going to see how they address it in verse 3 and 4 as they reflect biblical priorities. Because notice what they do in verse 3. Like good Presbyterians, they appoint a committee. (laughs) Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Why seven? Well, in normal Jewish culture of this time, seven men were needed to kind of erect some sort of a place of worship, a place of governance in the synagogue. So seven was normal in that culture. And these men were to be of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The duty is mercy. The duty is unity. The duty is making sure that the widows of the Hellenists, they get the food that they need each day. But the apostles are saying that duty doesn't belong to us. It must belong to these seven men, men who are sensible, men who are spiritual. Uh, They're known inside and outside of the church as having a good reputation. What does it mean that they're full of the spirit, but they are men of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, also men full of, of wisdom. Uh, you might know, as this is no doubt the, the early pattern that establishes the diaconate so often deacons as they're ministering mercy to needs in the life of a local congregation. It isn't always so black and white exactly how to address a particular need. So therefore, what do they need? Wisdom and how they might bring that mercy to bear on an individual's life how they might supply for the need that is so desperate at that time. Kids, I don't know about you. I am now, how old am I? 38 years old. So I don't remember too many birthday presents I've gotten over the course of my life, but I remember one in particular really well. I believe I was something like eight or nine years old. And we were living in a neighborhood in Richardson at the time, my sisters and I with our family, where we would often ride bikes up and down the street. You know, we'd ride bikes around the corner to go to Slurpee at 7-Eleven. We'd ride down to the local elementary school to play on the playground or play at the baseball field, whatever it was, ride a few blocks away to where my grandparents were living at the time. And, and this year in particular that I have in mind, I got, I got a brand new bicycle. It was big. It was a little bit unwieldy. But as I was starting to ride it up and down the sidewalk, I noticed that its ride was, was rather smooth. And in my own childlike mind, I couldn't figure out why this bike was so smooth compared to what I was used to. And quickly, someone pointed out to me that this mountain bike that my parents had purchased for me, it had shock absorbers on it. I never experienced such a thing on two wheels before. You know, you go over a crack and you really don't feel it along the way. And if you understand what Acts 6 is teaching and you combine it with the relevant passages in the New Testament on the nature of diaconal ministry, that's what real deacons are. They're shock absorbers. That's when you have these cracks, when you have these bumps in the church's life that come along the way, men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. What do they do but make sure the the ride is smoother than it would be otherwise, more seamless than it would be otherwise, Serving mercy, serving the needs physically and materially that are in the church. So that notice, verse 4, 
the apostles in this original context can devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The word there even for devote, it's speaking about this intensity and this fervency, this this single-mindedness that belongs to praying and preaching. For it's in the preaching of the gospel that the church grows. So healthy church structure doesn't just address common problems. It's reflecting biblical priorities. It recognizes the preeminence of praying and preaching. It seems like about every year now I teach a class down at the seminary on pastoral ministry and I remind the students that are often in that class that almost all of them will spend the majority of their a gospel ministry in what is probably going to be a small church. Uh, most churches, no matter the denomination, no matter the network, are actually quite small. And therefore, as a pastor of a small church, you tend to have to be this generalist, jack-of-all-trades type figure. And I read them this quote from an old book that was commenting on this about 25 years ago, where the author said, quote, the modern pastor is expected to be a preacher, a counselor, administrator, PR guru, Fundraiser and handholder. Depending on the size of the church he serves, he may have to be an expert on youth, something of an accountant, janitor, evangelist, small groups expert, an excellent chair of committees, a team player, and also a transparent leader. You read him that quote, but then you read him Acts chapter 6, verse 4, and remind him that which God is going to hold account of you, or hold you accountable for, well, it is prayer and preaching. What was Jesus Christ going to hold his apostles accountable for? Not whether or not they were found in the line of serving food to the widows. As noble and necessary as such a line was, they must pray, they must preach, and we must always get the order right. It's prayer, then preaching. Prayer is the first half of the ministry that gives the second half of the ministry all of its power. That's why one early church historian Eusebius wrote of James the Just, called him the camel-kneed preacher. And you might think, why? Why would he say that? Well, supposedly he was so fervent in prayer, praying actually in the temple in that first century context, supposedly for the forgiveness of sins for all of his people, that his knees became so hard from all the praying that it was like he had camel knees. And trust me, that's the kind of pastor and elder you need, the kind of pastors and elders you need. Sure, they might have expertise in counseling. They might have ability and leadership. They might even be able to think about a budget with some degree of detailed excellence. But they need to be, first of all, men of, of prayer and, and preaching. I thought about that this week in my own life. You know, think about how the, how the children would answer the question of what does your dad do for a living? You know, as, as a pastor, you always get these questions throughout your ministry. You know, you know what is it that you do Monday through Saturday? And I think my children would say, well, yeah, dad preaches on Sunday, and well, then he just, he's at meetings all the time, <laughs> often not home. And some of those meetings are, you know, the necessary administrative meetings, but many of those meetings, aren't they? The ones where you're ministering the word and praying with people. These are the biblical priorities that need to be woven throughout the ordinary experience of a church's life that the gospel might advance. There must be deacons, servants that care for those matters of mercy and material need. We must appoint qualified men to such an office and also long for pastors and, and elders who are known preeminently that they pray first. 
but they also can preach, and they do preach, ministering God's word as well. And what we see then in the final few verses of our text is healthy church structure grows with God's power. Because you'll see verse 5, and what they said, it pleased the whole gathering, and they chose these seven men, names that actually tell us that these men themselves were almost certainly Hellenists, that they were strategically and specifically chosen to minister to the unique need that was there in the churches of Jerusalem. Verse 6, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So children, if you've ever been here before on a Sunday where we might ordain someone to the gospel ministry, it could be a teaching elder, it could be a ruling elder, it could be a deacon, and you've seen all the elders gathering up here on the platform and they're laying hands upon the man, surrounding him, setting apart by by prayer. It's got this biblical foundation for it. They're consecrated, they're designated, they're they're set apart for that ministry, and such is the case with these seven men. But I want you to see, notice verse 5, what we're told at the beginning, what they said, the program and the priorities to address the problem. It pleased the whole gathering. It often is just that simple, isn't it? This is what God desires for us to be. Therefore, this is how God desires for us to live. This is what God desires for us to do. Deacons that minister Christ's mercy. Pastors and elders that minister Christ's word. I wonder even in your own heart and spirit, such simplicity and a healthy structure, does it please you? Does it delight you? Are you happy? And yes, that's really what God requires of us. It was about 50 years ago that in the American evangelical church, this thing that became known as the church growth movement really began to swell. And some time ago, I was looking through all of these old manuals of church growth, what was necessary for churches to increase, what was necessary according to the wisdom of the time for churches perhaps to look like the apostolic church that was always increasing And so I just pulled out all these books out of a rather large library published during this time. And according to those books, some of the more popular answers were that the church needs to adopt practices from the business world to increase efficiency. We need full orb, five, ten, and twenty-year visions, lest the church perish. We need to listen to the spirit, center the church on community groups, adopt marketing principles. We need to meet people's expectations and felt needs. And so I kind of put those books away, and I, I got the wisdom of... 50 years ago. Well, let me just go now to the best-selling books in the category of church growth and see what the modern wisdom says and if it's any different. And those bestsellers said that what we need if we're going to see God's growth and power in our life is transformative, confident, growing, free, highly effective, purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, in touch with history, house church-oriented, multi-site, relevant, relational, focused churches on high-impact worship. And I thought to myself, that sounds rather painful, doesn't it? (laughs) What is necessary for a church to grow? Healthy church structure is necessary for a church to grow. Notice verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what I want to mention here at the very end, two more consequences, we might say, of healthy church structure. Number one, it brings multiplication of the word. 
It's fascinating, isn't it, perhaps, that we see in the first few phrases of verse 7, it's not that the church increased in size. That's going to say that at the end of the verse. But here's that the word of God continued to increase. There's something of a spiritual math equation that's actually present in the passage, isn't it? It's multiplication via division. Division of the labor in an appropriate biblical sense is actually bringing multiplication of the word into the life of those who are hearing it. And it's a glorious word, isn't it? Kids, you might even circle it there in verse 7. It continued to increase. It had already been doing that. It had been increasing, and it continued to increase as healthy church structure began to form and fashion the early church's life. Don't you long to be in a place where you can say more than the word of God was increasing? That's a wonderful thing. And you should pray that in a place like this, the word of God is increasing. But it's something even more glorious to say the word of God is continuing to increase, just as it is always done among this particular people. So I wonder if you even like the idea of a church growing. Some of you might know that even in a church that's growing, that the souls are thriving and in a reverent way, getting fat upon the truth of God's word. You might know that even Satan can begin to twist that. Not many people like change in many places of their life, let alone even in a local church. There can be a sense of which I just wish it was smaller. I wish it was what it used to be. Yet if you know anything about the book of Acts, when, when the gospel's advancing, what's always happening? Church is always changing. It's always increasing. It's always adjusting, evolving according to the Spirit's power in their midst. So there's multiplication of the word, but there's also salvation of souls, isn't there? The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Healthy church structure is serving people being saved. And in a way, he doesn't always do in the book of Acts. Luke is fixing our attention, isn't he, in the end of verse 7 on these priests. So let me fix your attention on them as we now end. You have thousands of priests at this time serving in the temple on rotation, doing their shifts according to the ancient law. You have thousands of priests thus that are hearing what? The gospel being preached. Because we're told day in and day out, the apostles are going and preaching Not just house to house, but in the temple. So you have men well-trained in the truth. You have people well-versed in religion for years and years, perhaps even decades and decades. Finally, through the preaching of the gospel, the application of it by the Spirit, finding now that gospel advancing into their hearts. Some of you may have been in a local church like this for Years and years, you've been catechized well. You could recite truth. You could understand the contours of the Christian religion and its devotion and discipline. But you haven't yet had the gospel advance into your heart. What were they doing? The text tells us throughout the book of Acts that no, nothing more. These apostles, they're showing up in the temple and they're preaching that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the leader we saw last week for sinners like you. And I wonder if you've actually ever responded to the truth that you are a sinner who deserves God's judgment. That Christ is the only Savior for people like you. And that you yourself might become obedient to the faith 
Because the gospel itself has a law to it, doesn't it? It's a summons to repent and believe. So a healthy church structure, it does address common problems and reflect biblical priorities. It, it leads to growth in God's power, the multiplication of the word, and even a salvation of souls. Let's pray that it would be such in a place like our own gathering. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, our King and our leader who pours out gifts upon his church, gifts that do include officers, deacons that serve, elders and pastors that shepherd. Lord, we ask that our structure, even in this church, might be healthy, that the gospel would advance in us, among us, and through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.